0: Hi everyone, this is Eugene, and as a preface for this episode, I just wanted to say that this conversation between Paul and Steve of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum was definitely one of my favorite episodes thus far. The Holocaust is one of the biggest moral traumas in our history, and while listening to Steve talk about the work that he's done over the past 30 years, I was surprised to learn about the disparate parts of the globe, not just Jews, but everybody who was persecuted during the Holocaust fled to. While listening to him speak about records and trying to match birth dates with names, I really felt the importance of making records, whether it was written or oral. And yeah, there are just so many people in this world and we are individually just one of them. So trying to locate one person is actually so, so much more difficult than it might seem even with all of the technology that we have. So... The last thing that I just wanted to add before turning it over to Paul was to encourage everyone who lives in the D.C. area or visits to take a couple hours to visit the museum. It's incredibly powerful, and the last time I went, they held an event for live histories where a survivor would speak to an audience. So those oral histories can also be found on their website, which is free for everybody to listen to. And if you just Google our U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, you'll find a whole bunch of resources. So with that, here's Paul and Steve Vito.
1: victims at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, DC. Steve, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Thank you for asking me, Paul. So we often like to start our podcast with how you came to care so deeply about this work on family separation and reunions. So could you just give a brief introduction about what you do at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum? Absolutely.
2: Thanks for the question, Paul. So my job is to research documents and information on the individuals uh, during the Holocaust. And this is in response to questions I get from all sorts of people, mostly family members how I came to this, as you mentioned, I started here 30 years ago, even before the museum was open. And a big question we all had, the founding staff was, you know, A, would anybody come to the museum once we open? And of course, B is what kinds of uh, questions uh, would we get? And I started off working in the library, building our library collection and providing reference But it soon became clear after we opened in April of 1993 that the primary question we were getting in the library was not about history or education or things like that. It was people asking about their own family stories. If it was a survivor coming, wanting to know information on family that they lost, or it's the families of survivors or victims who are coming to us asking for information about their families or the places that their families had come from. And so when this happened very quickly, we opened in April 93. By the summer of 1993, we realized, hey, we need to address our collections in order to address this kind of question we were getting. I was a reference librarian. If you can imagine a library desk and all of a sudden there would be a line of maybe 20 or 30 people, one after the other. And this was the kind of question that they asked and so you know we geared our collections that way i developed an expertise in this and of course looking in people's eyes listening to their voices to the photographs the things that they were presenting to me it was like that's what i had to do that's what still motivates me today a a lot of stories and heartache but it's mostly looking to the eyes of the people asking me their voices the responses that they give me is still the motivating factor
1: that's amazing. And, and on a personal level, you said you started working at the museum before it was even, the building was even there. So was there kind of a personal motivation for what drew you to this job or to this kind of work in the first place?
2: In a general sense, yeah, I had been doing graduate work at George Washington University in a related topic about the study of academic prejudice, actually. So the opportunity to work in the library at the museum and was first developing its collections was an opportunity I, I saw as mostly a job to help me with my work. But a lot of us, in the fa- especially the founding staff, once we started and once we opened, it was the people that were coming to us that was really guiding what would be our focus of the services that we provide. So our education department, our exhibitions, we were all really motivated by the kind of questions we got from visitors and from outside people interested in what we were doing. So. Even though I started off building a library collection and services, like a lot of us, it was a response to the incredible response we were getting from visitors and people who contacted us that really guided us to this sort of thing. And it's the same thing with me.
1: And I'm wondering if you can, for both myself and our listeners, podcasts, we try to examine various different stories and contexts in which families are separated. So a lot of us are familiar and hopefully have been educated about the Holocaust, but could you please just briefly walk us through the general context in which families were separated from what you've seen in your work during the Holocaust?
2: Absolutely. And of course, like with the Holocaust or World War II or any big event, it's not just one event. There are certain stages and dynamics that change over time. The Holocaust in general, of course, was the systematic and state-sponsored persecution and murder of 6 million Jews by the Nazi regime and its allies and collaborators. But this starts in January of 1933 with Adolf Hitler and the Nazi Party coming into power. And certainly anti-semitism was a big part of their platform but it took a while through 1933 to 1935 with the nuremberg laws that denied citizenship to german jews they lost their jobs and things like that and this starts to put jewish families question well how do we react to this do we just sit and wait it out uh, some people's families did that but some started saying no we need to leave we need to get out of this situation mm-hmm. and of course A lot of the families had been there for, you know, 100 years, have built Germany, so many were reluctant to leave. But after 1938, things start to ratchet up a little bit more. It moves from a policy of excluding Jews from German society and culture and politics to really actively trying to expulsion of the Jewish community. So things like Kristallnacht in November of 1938 were Jewish businesses, were destroyed. Buildings were destroyed. Tens of thousands of Jews were rounded up and sent to prisons and camps for sometimes weeks, sometimes months. And return, again, as a sense of trying to get people a sense that they're not wanted in this community. And so, again, these families are faced with this issue. What do we do? We lost our business. We're not able to practice our jobs as lawyers or doctors. They're arresting us. And again, many, many want to leave during this period, but they're finding it hard to leave. A lot of countries have certain quotas uh, for Jews, and they restrict their ability of the Jewish families or Jewish individuals to get out of Nazi Germany. The ship called the St. Louis in May of 1939. Over 900 Jews on board who were trying to leave had visas, but that visa was denied. They were denied entry in Cuba. They tried to get into the United States, were denied entry, and had to go back. So There was a number of people who got the sense, we need to leave this place. That increased more and more. Finally, when the war starts in September of 1939, the territory controlled by the Nazis expands greatly and the number of Jewish families that they are over expands exponentially. And so again, more and more Jewish families are faced with the idea of what do we do? Do we stay and wait this out? Do we deal with it or do we leave? It's never one in every family. Not everyone has the same idea. Some were against leaving. Children did not want to leave their parents. Parents did not want to leave their families. But necessity more and more with the war coming and the whole idea of the murder of the Jewish community throughout Europe and Eastern Europe kind of forced this decision and made it more impending on the Jewish communities.
1: And I'm wondering if you could... You know, I think just the scale and yeah, just the sheer scale and numbers of the Holocaust is just astounding to a lot of people, including myself. But I wonder if you could help illustrate that with the story or two. Oh, sure. Uh, In my
2: work, I've been honored to be a a part of so many family stories, and they really embrace me as a person for doing the research on on their family. As you can imagine, it's the reunion of two living survivors or family members was rare, and is of course, getting rarer and rarer. I did have the opportunity once to deal with the daughter of a survivor. The survivor lived in Australia. The family was in Australia. She came to the United States, came to us looking for information on her mother, who was from Poland. Born in Germany, but the persecution experience happened in Poland. And she was looking for documents and information on her mother. Mother was a survivor, so she knew things. But to see documents on her mother was really important. So she calls her mother uh, in Australia. And the mother is elated to find these documents on herself. But the mother's first question is she wanted to ask about her first boyfriend that she had met in the Tarnow ghetto. They had been incarcerated there, met, and this person saved her many times. They were teenagers. But at a certain point, they were separated. So this mass separation of families who were together, but also friends who all of a sudden are separated. She's separated from this boyfriend who saved her. They promised that they would marry after the war but she never hears about him again. She made many attempts to find him after the war, but it wasn't until they came to our public state that I did research on her. I talked to her and she had a little bit of information and through a process of what I do, I listen to the stories people tell me, think about data points, places, and time periods, and where to look for documents on uh, that might shed some light on the story. In this particular case, I was able to find the person that matched her description, wartime documents, I found documents that this person had survived. I found documents that this person actually ended up in Canada. And I used two distinct resources we have. One was the records of what is now called the Arrelson Archives. Documents on that, but we also have a survivor's registry at our museum where survivors provided information to us. So I found the person that she was talking about. And I found current information. He was registered with us. And so she was living in Australia, the survivor. He was living in Canada. And they were never able to meet physically because they were too old. But they did what we're doing now. They did a Skype meeting. They had letters. They exchanged packages after over 65 years. She told me that the first time that saw saw her over Skype, he says, your eyes are still as beautiful as that what I remember 65 years ago.
1: That's like something out of a Hollywood movie. Right. And that's uh, that
2: had reverberations for all of their families. Uh, that's what you would call a happy reunion story, but... More often than not, instead of two people meeting, what we do is we reunite people with information. Uh, They lost track of two people. People are separated. And the main thing is being able to provide people with information on what happened. And you mentioned the case of a father and son. This is a case of the the son of a survivor asking me for information on his father, which I was able to find, and they were very happy about that. But for his father, the survivor had always wondered about what happened to his his father and his family. They were separated early. And this is also an example of a great thing our museum does. So this survivor survived the war, and I had letters that this survivor was asking about his father and family since 1945. I had letters from the summer of 1945 through the 50s and 60s, 70s, always asking for information on his family, especially his father. And he always got the response, there is no information, no documentation. But I was able to find uh, documentation on this survivor's father. And I was able to not only get documentation, but find out that his father had actually survived the war The survivor I dealt with was living in Israel, and sadly, I found that the survivor's father after the war had also gone to Israel. And after research, we were able to find out that the two, the father and son, survived and were living not more than 10 miles away from each other in Israel, but had never hooked up, had never made that connection. But being able to provide that information to the survivor and his family that his father had survived, is very difficult to deal with that they were that close together geographically. But still, it was another great moment of a survivor finding some information that really brought things full circle.
1: So I suppose that in that case with the father and son, the father had already passed away by that time he found the information?
2: That's exactly right. The survivor was still alive, but his father had subsequently died. But again, this hunger in the family, the family still pursued it. Where did the father live? It turns out that the father had remarried. Did they have children? And they were able to find out the address where they had lived. They tried to find every morsel of information on them, not just the survivor, but the whole family really partook in this. And when the survivor I dealt with, well, they passed away, this whole story was a big part of the funeral process of the ceremonies and talking about this experience uh, of them. It became a major thing for the family to coalesce around, to bring them together in solidarity. And they were very generous. I uh, couldn't go, but they invited me to it. They sent me a video where they were thanking me in the ceremony. So it involves not just the survivors, et etc., but the whole family as well.
1: You know, Steve, uh, thank you so much for sharing those two very poignant stories. But I think what stands out to me is that I think it's one thing for families, you know, this father and son not to be able to find each other in the 1940s, But it's another thing when it's hard to imagine for me, you know, in this age of now we're kind of overloaded by information, right? And we can call anyone we want to and know what they're doing through social media and the internet. So what was it about these situations that they couldn't find what happened to their loved ones or their relatives on their own? Is it just a lack of resources or did they not have the technology or what do you think was it that that you had in the US Holocaust Memorial Museum that was the key to unlocking this puzzle?
2: Uh, so as that's an excellent question. I always say, you know, the information is out there. I work with a lot of genealogists and even in just in my work in general. Even with the Internet, it's one thing to have all of this information out there. But it's another thing to be able to navigate through that, all that information and data to find the thing that you really want. And that takes a peculiar skill and a peculiar mindset that's different from other types of searches and researches. One thing we certainly had is our amazing collection at our museum. When we first opened, we were able to acquire amazing documents from all over Europe. The wall had just fallen, so we had a window of opportunity to get a lot of documents that had never been available behind the Iron Curtain, brought to our place. And my job is to go into these large collections with millions and millions of documents and finding a needle in a haystack, finding you know a particular name. And putting that together is the unique thing. It's combining all those two. You have to have the documents and data information, as you mentioned. But you also have to have the ability to focus what you're searching for with names and different spellings of names, different dates of birth. These are the tools of my trade that really inhibited people, even till today, from finding families. What's the name? Uh, How do you spell that name? Bromowitz, that's a very popular name, that has scores and scores of different ways of being spelled. Dates of birth, people didn't know the exact dates of birth or the spellings of the towns of birth changes as borders change. These are all still inhibitions to finding this information. And so just back to answering your question, it's having the direct access to these collections where this information is. But it's also like jazz, it's putting all these things together that results and any successes and before that just was not really done they had collections they had some people who were asking about them but people whose main job was to do this there were organizations the International Tracing Service was certainly one of them and they helped millions of people but still a drop in the bucket
1: what I'm curious about is that those individuals that you mentioned the woman was in Australia and then her former boyfriend was in Canada but the museum itself is in the United States. So I'm just curious about the type of requests that you get because I would expect them to be, you know, mostly from the United States. But do you also get research requests and also donations from historical materials from different parts of the world?
2: This is a great question. Yeah, we get We get requests from, I think, 77 now different countries. And this has to do with, again, going back to the 1930s and 40s, a lot of people were trying to get out in actually 30s and 40s and also in the media post-war period when Jews did not want to go back home, could not, and they were trying to get anywhere that they could. And so we have manifests from people who went to Shanghai, China, who went to Nicaragua, went to South America, They went anywhere in the thirties that they could go, even if they didn't know anybody, just to get out of the situation. And this is especially true right after the war in the displaced persons camps where the survivors were after they were liberated and they could not go at home. They went anywhere that they could. I work with a survivor I've known for 25 years. He was offered the chance to go to Panama and he didn't know any Spanish. He didn't know anybody there, but he just wanted to go anywhere except Europe. And he uh-huh. went to Panama. So because of this, we have records from, you know Kazakhstan, from Japan, from China, from Iceland, from South America, where all of these people settled and built their stories. And that's part of the challenge of my job is trying to find out where those records are. Some families are really surprised at where, family members had gone. If I could just tell a quick story, this just, where I was working with this family, there were these two brothers, Moishe and mattis Wask, W-O-S-K. They were living in Poland, one brother, had left Poland in the 1920s before anything happened and settled in Nicaragua. And another brother stayed behind, went through the Holocaust and survived. But these two brothers were never able to get back in touch with each other. They lost track. Their grandchildren, actually of the survivor, who approached me. And in looking and researching documents on the family, I found out about this other family that they had that was living in Nicaragua. So they didn't know anything about this family. And as they sent me a beautiful video uh, just last week of this amazing reunion of this family, the family came from California, from Canada, from Nicaragua. Uh, Another one was in Chile because they had gone all these different places, but they all came together for this reunion. And it was these documents that I was able to find that showed where people went all over the world. Every continent, almost every country, some sort of document on Jews who were forced to flee and who set up lives in these different places, unbeknownst to other parts of the family.
1: Uh, that's just like a reflection of the Jewish diaspora and, and its history in some ways.
2: And I I mean, I should mention the focus of the Holocaust is certainly on the persecution of Jews who were the primary target, but our collections are not just of Jews. Actually, the majority of our records are of non-Jews who suffered a different level of persecution, but still persecution, dislocation, arrest, deportation, and things like that. So. I have a good friend, a famous historian, he passed away many years ago, Dr. Henry Friedlander. Well, I should say most of our documents come from concentration camps and forced labor records and things like that. But uh, Dr. Henry Friedlander always says, you know, most Jews never made it to the camps. They were killed where they were. And so documents are not available for those groups and a lot of other groups as well that would face persecution. It's their story that's reflected in our collections as well.
1: And I'm also wondering, you know, you mentioned that you relied on two databases of resources in particular, the uh, International Tracing Service Archives and the Museum Survivors Registry. But I'm just curious about this International Tracing Service. I mean, how do you work with it and are there overlapping resources as well? Because I think what struck me was that I saw that it's made up of multiple countries who work together to build up this registry. So could you discuss a little bit about your experience working with that archive? Absolutely.
2: Yes. Today they've been renamed the Arrelson Archives. But for most of their lives, they were called the International Tracing Service of the Red Cross. We have to go back to after the war in the summer of 1945 and it was a military directive of the western allies to capture documentation when they came across prisons or factories or things like that and send these to a central place in Bad Arles in Germany. So after the war they had this big collection but they attached to that the mission to the International Red Cross which has many countries that are members. And their job was to use this collection and make it so that they could take requests from people who had survived to try to find out what happened to their families. Really amazing story of millions and millions of documents of names. You know, how do you find one name in all of that? And they hired hundreds and hundreds of people to look at every name list, every form, and to type up an individual's name on that list or document, put it on a separate index card, and they alphabetize those names so that if someone is asking for a person, they would know that that is on a document. The collection was transferred to our museum in 2008, and from 2008 onward, we have direct access to all of these records. You know, we're able to look at all of these. And if I can make one other point about the collection, it's basically a three-part collection. There are wartime records, which are mostly of camp records, deportation records, forced labor records. And the Allies set up a displaced persons camp system, so all the people that could not or did not want to return back home were refugees in these refugee camps called the displaced persons camps and all those people were registered into the displaced persons camp system and they were tracked until they left europe i told you about one survivor wanting to go to panama and so this became another collection all of a sudden we have all of these people who were survivors that we have access to the information on so not just wartime but also this information about where people went if they survived and things like that. The third part is it's a tracing service. So people are asking about themselves or family members, especially survivors in the 50s and 60s as part of compensation claim processes, provided information on themselves that often they never told their wives or their children. Were you married before the war? Yes. This is my wife's name. I had these three children. Basic things like that, they filled out on forms and getting documents on themselves. And we have access to these files also called tracing and documentation files. And this has proved a wealth of information on the survivors that provide information that they never provided their family members and so since I have access to all three of those parts of the Arrelson Archives, I'm able to, in my research, combine all three in order to find some of the information. And some of that has been amazing. That father, you know, for instance, that survived but the son didn't know it, that was on a record from the Displaced Persons camp. It was just a shit manifest of him going to Israel. I see his name and it matched the date of birth I had. And we also found the person he had married after the war. So by having access to all of those in this collection has really been a significant development in being able to do this. I do have to say that our own collection at the museum is world-class. I think we have the largest collection. And we've really made an effort to, again, finding a needle in a haystack. Before I would have to look through millions of frames looking for one name. I didn't even know if it was there. But now we're starting to scan documents and have those names entered into databases. We've partnered with Ancestry. We have our own system of attaching documents to entries. So by searching a name, we're able to have access to a lot more documents. So the, the whole landscape has changed a lot. The opening of the Errolsen Archives and us acquiring in 2008 was a major game change. I would say, in the last six years, partnering with Ancestry and our own system. And also, there's a worldwide effort now They acknowledge all the documents, especially in Eastern Europe, are being researched and analyzed and digitized. And this is really starting to change the game in our ability to give documents and information on people. Again, less and less individual reunions, but a reunion of information for sure.
1: There's so much that I appreciate about that. And I think the work that you're doing it serves as just this amazing kind of precedent and role model for other organizations that want to before reuniting families you know finding information and tracing so that's amazing. And, and also what struck me was that some people are able to confide and trust this information with you, these archives, but it feel difficult to share this information with their own families about their, their past. So I'm wondering if we could take a step back and and I wanted to ask you if, you know, you've worked on these issues for the past Thirty years, and you've seen so many different and diverse stories uh, from different backgrounds. As you said, it's I think if there's one thing I've seen is that there's no monolithic one cookie cutter uh, story. But are there trends that you've noticed in the requests and research inquiries that you've received? For example, is there a particular demographic, uh, you know, mostly children or mostly people from a certain? area who make these requests and also are there any trends that you've seen of the stories that people come with and the stories that you end up discovering
2: there are. As you can imagine, the first demographic change is obvious. Earlier on, it was survivors themselves that were coming to us, coming to me, uh, and asking for information on themselves and on their families. Also uh, in the museum, I mean, my boss is the head librarian, was a survivor. And so that's the first thing is that survivors were coming to us with their own stories and their own families. Of course, as time goes on, it's going to be more their their children and grandchildren who are asking about their parents and grandparents and things like that. This is just a you know a natural chronological progression. But a parallel development in that we found is that many survivors, maybe even most survivors, did not want to talk about what they had gone through, especially with their families. Some did and some spoke and told everything and spoke to schools, but I would say most did not. And it's a function of aging survivors that later on in life, they certainly became curious or were able to focus more on these questions than they had before and in many yeah. cases this either starts as survivors or starts the children or grandchildren asking this kind of question so that'd be the natural progression survivors at first children and I've been really impressed with the grandchildren and great-grandchildren of uh, the passion with which they're trying to honor their families legacies and their stories They collect oral histories or they collect data. They create websites on their families. They have maps where they show where their families lived and things like that. That's really the most beautiful thing to see. So age is the big demographic. Uh, I should say, as we become more known, as more people know about the service we provide, it's a lot of different types of things. It could be a student who had a teacher who was a survivor that really moved them. It could be a neighbor who helped a survivor next door that's been asking us uh, for information. We do outreach to uh, the Polish community, to all these different groups the russian community the ukrainian community jehovah's witnesses all sorts of communities say we do have these documents and they're more and more coming to us for the documents to reflect them as well and you're right it's mostly from the united states and it's second most from from israel but again we get requests from japan from china from every place that you can imagine for a variety of reasons
1: to hear from you that that it was the children and grandchildren of the survivors who initiated these, what I imagine were very difficult conversations about these scars. That is touching and inspiring because I feel like a lot of families, they have a lot of divisions between generations. Grandparents don't talk to their grandchildren. Parents don't talk to their children about these kinds of personal issues. So my last question is, I don't know the exact numbers, but it seems to me that just based on how many years have passed since the end of World War II, most of these first-hand survivors have either passed away or imagined they're at the twilight of their lives. They, they must be very elderly, and it's almost impossible for them, especially now with uh, the pandemic, to physically reunite with their loved ones that you know, they were separated from during the Holocaust. So why is it important for these children and grandchildren to find out on behalf of the survivors on what happened, even if physical reunion is not a possibility?
2: Yeah, that's such a great question. And I get asked that a lot. You know, what is it that is pushing people? And it's hard to get an answer. All I can really say is it's certainly a fact that, People who are looking for family connections, we see that all over the place, right? So I'm a I'm a consultant for those two TV shows, Finding Your Roots in America and Who Do You Think You Are in Britain. There's all these genealogical shows. There's Ancestry and the DNA testing and things like that. And I work with people. it's just consumes them that they start trying to find one person and then another person. And again. Why people do that, the connection they have with searching their own family, the connection they have with somebody that they never met or have any information on is just something you have to see in their eyes and hear in their voice or read in the letters they write to us to say why it's so important to them to take this on again grandchildren great-grandchildren i've seen them cry in front of me when they get information on a great-grandparent they never met or didn't even know about but it certainly has that visceral impact on them why is it why is it that all these people are going to ancestry again just with the arilson archives we've gotten about thirty-six thousand requests since we opened in 2007 We started a program where we provide documents uh, delivery through our websites. We get 5,400 requests every month for these documents, and we've been doing this for about three years. So it's just the case that people have this enormous thirst and hunger for this information, and they're drawn to it, and once they're in it, it is just something that draws them. A quick personal story, I, have, I know this feeling in my own family. I, I was born in Italy but came to America when I was very young. And for a variety of reasons, I was cut off from this family that was still in Italy. But I undertook my own search for my family members in Italy. And this is just in the last couple of years. And I did find people and went over there. And it's just this feeling of meeting my uncles and cousins and things like people I had not known about or met before, but meeting them, the hugs and the kissing and the tears. And I mentioned this other family reunion about this family, some who were in Nicaragua in Canada. The video shows these people coming together and it's like they're pieces before, but when they come together, they're whole again and that feeling is so incredible. I think people get a little bit of that when they get a piece of information or a document. They see a signature on a form. They see a date of birth or a writing of somebody, and they just feel so connected to that family member. Why is it? I'm not sure, but it's certainly the case.
1: I can totally relate to that in my own search for my own roots and my family and And ultimately, I mean, why why I'm doing this, Uh, why I'm doing this project and podcast in the first place. So thank you so much, Steve, for this fantastic overview and and discussion. And finally, is there anything you would like to recommend for listeners who want to learn more about the work that you do or, or get involved and help in any way?
2: Absolutely. So the one thing is what we're doing now. We have this research service at the Holocaust Museum. A lot of people don't know about it. They may know that we have these archival collections, but a lot of people aren't aware of this research service. So if people go to our website, ushmm.org, they can look at our names database. Some of it is online. Most of it is not. People can provide us information on family members, on people, and we will search our records for free certainly spread that word. One project that we partnered with Ancestry with is I mentioned that we have so many millions of documents, but we'll never be able to go through each one of those names and pull them out and find them. And we've partnered with Ancestry where we're able to provide images of a lot of these documents. And if people go to the website, Ancestry.com, or especially the website World Memory Project, Ancestry has created a tool where people from their homes, they can do this today, download a piece of software for their laptop or computer. And what they will see is a scanned image of a document, a name list or a form. And we're asking people any place in the world they can do this and enter the names that they see on that document into a database. And by doing that, By spreading this out, by crowdsourcing this project, we've been able to make millions and millions of names findable that were never able uh, to be found before. This is something that anybody, any place, for any amount of time can download this piece of software. And lastly, I would just ask people, whenever you see things like refugee camps, or if it's a mother or a daughter, a father and a son or daughter being separated, whatever reason, just think about that moment and what those people take with them after the separation, not knowing what happened to people. Just focus on the impact of these world events on individual people and families.
1: Absolutely. And I guess I have my own homework cut out for me. And I look forward to visiting the museum, hopefully in the near future, but whenever that's possible. So thank you so much again, Steve. This is really amazing. I look forward
2: to returning to it as well.
0: <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. And if you're interested in hearing more stories of family separation follow us on instagram at divided families podcast if you enjoyed this episode please rate us on apple podcasts and you can follow us on your preferred streaming platform thanks as always to flannel albert for the music and see you next time